Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. The beginning of 2022 has been defined by another variant, precarious geopolitical relations and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host, Shibani Mehta, and this week we're discussing the Rohingya crisis. In Myanmar, the Rohingya people have been subjected to decades of brutality, prejudice, and persecution. After a tremendous wave of violence, which erupted in August 2017, more than 7 lakh people, half of them children, were forced to flee to Bangladesh, India, Thailand, and other Southeast Asian countries. Entire villages were set ablaze, thousands of people were slaughtered or separated from families, and widespread human rights violations were documented. A military onslaught, later condemned as an example of ethnic cleansing by the United Nations, forced millions to flee by ship or on foot. Nearly one million people are still stranded in Cox's Bazar, the world's largest refugee camp. The recent catastrophic burning in the camp, which forced 50,000 people to flee, served as a sobering warning that not just disease, but also rapid moving fires are common. In this episode of Interpreting India, we take a step back to understand the history of the Rohingya crisis. Who are the Rohingya people? What does their story tell us about Myanmar's political history? When did the polarization between the communities begin. Joining us today to discuss this is Jayita Sarkar. Dr. Jayita Sarkar is a senior lecturer in economics and social history at the University of Glasgow. Her research specialization is in global South Asia, connected partitions, global histories of capitalism, and nuclear technologies. She's the author of Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War. Thank you, Professor Sarkar, for joining us bright and early in the morning. Um, we've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time now, and uh, we're really delighted that uh, you could join us today. Of course, it's my great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. When uh, we talk about the Rohingya people, uh, it's something that you have studied uh, for a very long time. But in public knowledge, the immediate reference tends to be the military campaign in 2017. However, as you have often written and spoken about, uh, the, the history of the Rohingya people dates back centuries. And uh, in one of your lectures, you've described that the region is that is now comprised of Myanmar uh, used to have strong maritime ties with Southeast Asia, India, and China. Uh, right from the 19th century. And there is a rich history of circular migration as well. So did the ethnic divisions exist between them, between the people back then, or is this a new phenomenon? Yeah, I think that's a great question to start this interview with, uh, Shibani. So thank you for that. Um, so, so some of the things that I have written and spoken on, and this is an ongoing research project, a book-length project of mine on connected partitions and how partitions, the many partitions of the Bengal Delta can help us make sense of, you know, the, 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 the current status of, uh, of, of various forms of ethnic 
uh, groups who don't have a state uh, because of the new states that emerge. And so Rohingyas uh, fit that, um, that, that situation. So in terms of your question, uh, are these ethnic differences new? Um, uh, I, I would I mean, th- that really has to do with, you know, uh, the, the emergence of nation states in the world, uh, in, in the entire world, and that how nation states uh, in, are essentially conceptualized as homogeneous political units or with a clear majority and a clear minority or minorities, right? And so that 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 would take us to the early twentieth century with the uh, with with the Treaty of Versailles and the, you know the imposition of a European system of nation states in the world as older empires were um, uh, were collapsing. I'm thinking about the Habsburg and the Ottoman Empire, right? So this is what globalized nation state as 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 a territorial unit in the world, and as a result, those uh, the ethnic differences that always existed, right? I mean. Um, there is one thing to say that there are ethnic differences, and there's another thing to say these ethnic differences will mean that one group has certain amount of political power or not, right? So I think that, that's that's the main difference. I mean, uh, ethnic, cultural, racial, linguistic differences have existed in, in human civilization throughout. I mean, it's as old as uh, us as human beings itself. But at what point do we ascribe um, as, ascribe values that that has meaning for economic, political, and social power? Th- that that's a very twentieth century phenomenon, at least in 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 this part of the world. Um, so I would say that that's what's changing, uh, and that brings us to the question of exclusion and disenfranchisement and statelessness, right? Uh, so I would I would see I would think about the long durée of uh, how even when there is circular migration, or whether if you think about the Indian Ocean world, um, there are ethnic differences. Uh, and even within empires, pre-European, there are di- there are ethnic differences. But then uh, th- there is a certain amount of cosmopolitan coexistence that is considered permissible, um, which changes with nation states, right, in a very abstract form. Um, so so that, that's the key difference. Right. And when we talk about cosmopolitan coexistence, uh, especially when it comes to the Burmese identity, um, I think a lot of literature points to the fact that colonization by the British and uh, the Japanese invasion of Burma during the 1940s had a profound impact on the identity uh, of the Burmese people and in the sense laid the basis for the citizenship laws. Uh, that were formed in the coming decades. We were just trying to understand how decolonization would, in your opinion, amplify these divisions. And when exactly did the Burmese identity go from being a national category to an ethnic category? Excellent question. And I think, you know, your mention of, uh, your mention of uh, the British colonial experience of Burma and most notably, the Second World War is is so important because you know it it's it it really transformed what 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 Burma was to become uh, in January nineteen forty eight when it became independent. When it became independent, um, so I, I I would I would take us a little bit uh, further in time in the sense not to a different century but just a different decade in the nineteen thirties. And I think you know there 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 is a lot of uh, 
there is some literature, perhaps not a lot. There is quite some literature on, on, on racial violence in Burma in the 1930s and how um, as Burmese anti-colonialism uh, was emerging and expanding, there was this uh, underlying understanding that, that the British and the Indians were jointly benefiting from Burmese, um, from, from colonialism in Burma, right? Uh, because as before the part partition of you know, British Burma and British India, uh, Burma was being ruled as part British India, right? And uh, there, there were various forms of uh, um, uh, not just circular migration, there, there were various Indian communities of different parts of British India who, who settled in places like Rangoon, um, and you know, we, I, I'm from Calcutta, so there there is a there is a lot of um, there is a lot of um, uh, a lot of scholars uh, in the sense of a lot of um, uh, poets and uh, novelists who would write about Burma because they've spent so much time there in the 20s and 30s, uh, which means that there is a rich history of Indian presence in Burma using the um, using the infrastructure and institution of the British colonial state. So as, as a result, in the 30s, uh, when there is, you know, in the context of the Great Depression and economic crisis throughout the world, including this part of the world, there was this reaction against uh, what the Burmese felt was this, 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 this joint beneficiary um, of extraction of Burma, right? And so they're, they're, from the very beginning, so the question about at what point is it a national identity versus an ethnic identity, I mean, I think the, the very... Um, the, the very identity of an anti-colonial Burmese identity became ethnic from the get-go because it was in opposition to the British and the Indian. And I probably should use air quotes. I know our audience will not be able to see the air quotes, but it's, it's Indian within quotes because as we know with the decolonization of British India, that identity was also being formulated and reformulated over time, right? Not just partition, the princely states, right? So it's it, so Indian in, in Burmese imagination, as I, as I argue elsewhere, was, was a racial understanding um, as opposed to it didn't matter if, if they were if they were from um, if, if they were Bengalis or they were from they were from the south if they were they were Tamil it didn't matter right they were Indians and they are benefiting from Burmese extraction uh, or extraction of Burmese resources through British colonialism I and mean, I think it was that ethnic identity formed around the 1930s. And just exploded with the Second World War. Right. So the when the anti-colonial identity became a part of the sort of national identity itself, I think I'm curious to understand how the Rohingyas figure into all of this because um, again, in in the reading that I've come across, uh, the Rohingya people played an important role in establishing the Burmese government when it became independent uh, from the British Empire. And uh, you had members uh, from the Rohingya community as part of the Constituent Assembly in 1947. Official documents that were issued by the Burmese government uh, were proof that, you know, all the people, uh, all the ethnic communities were had the same rights and had the uh, same legal standing. Why do you think that this democratic outlook change to extreme nationalism following independence? Would you say that the model of democracy has failed to find its feet in Myanmar? 
Yeah, um, that's that's a big question, and that collapses. And as a historian, I'm thinking, how many decades will I cover as I answer this question? Uh, <laughs> probably four decades, right? Um, so let's uh, so let's 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 tackle democracy first as a concept, right? And you you started the podcast um, reminding your audience that. Uh, we have been concerned, we as you know, observers of you know, world politics, regional politics of South Asia, uh, we have been aware of the genocide of the Rohingya people since 2017. Uh, but if we just focus on newspaper reports, right, uh, in South Asia, um, the, the Times of India, Hindu, everybody were, were reporting this even in the early 2000s, right? So it caught international imagination at a certain juncture. And that had to do with the, the whole process started on, under the Obama administration of democratization of Myanmar, right? So democracies are, uh, they have rule of law, they have elections, but they also must, must protect the rights of ethnic minorities. And it is in that con context and understanding of what human rights should mean or must mean in democracies, uh, the international community started paying very, a lot of attention to uh, to the to the plight of the Rohingyas, right? Um, but their plight is 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 very long, um, and it is in that context of democratization of Myanmar, or or the complexity and the challenges or the incomplete processes that we uh, we recognized, and so that the the United Nations called it a textbook example of ethnic cleansing, right? Um, and since then, we've been paying a lot of attention, and now. There is more things to pay attention to in Myanmar in the context of you know, a, a brewing civil war uh, with the coup that happened a year ago. Um, so I think uh, so. There is one thing to say that why are we paying? Why have we been paying attention to the Rohingyas for the last five years? It is in the context of uh, incomplete, uh, sporadic, uh, erratic democratization, which we can conclude now is a failed process. Uh, so that's one. The other is about um, the, the the formal decolonization of Burma uh, in January '48 and the plight of the Rohingyas. So what I found in my research is that um, the, the the experience of the Second World War in that part of the world was was really important uh, to understand what the Rohingyas' relationship were uh, with um, uh, in 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 that um, in that region. So not just Burma, especially looking at Arakan. Today it's called Rakhine State, uh, and and I find uh, in the archives, uh, both the National Archives of India, the British Library, and the UK National Archives. I, I I'm yet to go to Bangladesh and Myanmar. I I hope I get to the archives, but so far, based on you know uh, Indian so documents in Delhi and London, I I find that you know there, there were there were several series of uh, several rounds of ethnic violence between the Buddhists and 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 the, and the Muslims. Of, uh, of of that that sliver of land, which is you know where the Rohingya townships are, uh, the Mongdao and Butidong, uh, during the war, and uh, and there were very different uh, the very different dynamic that was playing out during the Second World War because uh, if you if you remember the, the Burma campaign uh, was not just happening in the northeast of you know Kohima Battle of Kohima, but it really began uh, on the border between the uh, between um, uh, uh, southeastern Chittagong and northwestern Arakan, like that's where that's where the battles were being fought, uh, and uh, and this is where the the British military was directly training the people, the Muslims who we call Rohingyas today at that at the time in the document of the Arakanese Muslims, 
Arakanese Muslims is, you know, Rakhine Muslims. That's Rohingyas, it's the same thing. Um, the British military were, were, were training the Rohingyas to fight together with the Allied forces against the Japanese. And the war was such that, that, that most predominantly the Buddhist population has sided with the Japanese, at least at the beginning of the war, the switch in 1945. And so as a result, those, the, the, the loyalties that were crafted because of the dynamics of the Second World War and under, uh, un, under the level of the, the geopolitics, there was ethnic violence between Muslims and Buddhists in, in, in Arakan. And so we find that with decolonization, th- th- that those bitterness or those forms of bitterness did not just disappear. In fact, they, got, they become solidified. Uh, and the Rohingyas adopt, I find from my research, a, a two-pronged strategy, not the same Rohingyas, like different groups. So you have uh, a, a group of Rohingya um, leaders who want, to, who, who, want, who want to remain as part of Barba. And they would like, uh, they even uh, adopt, say they might, you know, they want some form of autonomy. Uh, they are happy to adopt the Burmese language script for their for their language, the Burmese script for their language. And then you have the the other uh, group, which are called the Mujahids, and uh, they actually declare war against or jihad against uh, the in Burmese independent state. And some of them would also they were they did not really they were not communists, but they did benefit from the arms and ammunition coming towards the Burmese communists who also opposed the independent, the newly independent Burmese state. So there, there was, it's, um, and that's why it's such a fraught uh, topic. And so, you know, on the one hand, there are some groups who think we, we are, we would like to be part of this future um, uh, newly independent, formally decolonized state. You know, this is our country, we'd like to be part of it. And the other is we would like to be part of East Pakistan because partition was on the basis of uh, uh, was the base of religion, and because we are Muslims, we ought to be part of East Pakistan, right? And so there, there are two pronged strategies. And uh, at the end of the day, with the luxury uh, of hindsight, we can say none of them worked, right? And so they're stateless today. Uh, so I think that the, the story is is complex, and multiple groups mul- tried multiple strategies uh, with very little success. That's a very long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I think it just points to the complexity, as you were saying, of the issue and how, as the public, we tend to simplify and just uh, note down key dates. Again, speaking about key dates, when we look at the history of South Asia, especially of India and the subcontinent, um, there is mention of the partition, like you said, of 1947 between India and Pakistan. And then again in 1971, of uh, between which led to the creation of Bangladesh. While Myanmar, as as a geography, was not part of either of these events, um, I, I read one of your articles where you said these had an impact on uh, the nation itself and, of course, the identity of the people. And like you were just saying, uh, there was a group of a part of Rohingya people that believed that. They uh, belonged to East Pakistan, uh, now Bangladesh. So I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how the change in borders has influenced identity and maybe being geographically sort of involved in the change itself doesn't mean that you're excluded from the impact. Yeah, terrific question. Terrific question, Shabani. Um, 
So I, I completely agree. I, I absolutely agree with the, with the very premise of your question about the significance of borders and how that affects uh, identities. And sometimes, you know, with very, 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 um, very exclusionary and very violent effects. Right. And I think, you know, once again, I would say that that's the thing, right? I mean, as growing up in India, I always believed in one partition by 1947. Um, and now, now with my research on connected partitions, I'm getting interested in that there are so many partitions in our subcontinent. Good Lord, it's fascinating. And all of those um, partitions have effects, effects on identities. So um, with respect to the Rohingya people, I would say that, you know, perhaps the first partition I, I wouldn't emphasize so much on the 1905 partition of, of Bengal, which was then reversed and this re-aggregation. But I think the partition of British India from British Burma, the 1937 partition of the Government of India Act of 35, um, th that I would say that's really important because that's that's the beginning of of borders in the sense of of migration and, and control, right? So when I you started the interview discussing, you know, some of my references to circular migration, right? Um, so if, if you look at the, 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 the geography of, uh, of, of where the, this um, uh, Teknaf Peninsula ends, and then you have the, you have the Naf River, which is the border between Bangladesh and Burma today, and then you have, uh, you have two townships. One is Mongdo, that is more coastal, and of Rohingya people, and then Butidong, which is little um, inland. Uh, so the Rohingyas, uh, you know, they were, they, a lot of them historically would work in, uh, in, in rice fields and then they would sell the rice and places so like Cox's Bazaar because it's, it's a bigger place. It's, it's historically a trading hub. Um, some, and sometimes it would come to Chittagong, but Cox's Bazaar was the hub. Uh, so you have a border through that, then that circular migration automatically is disrupted. Uh, so you need permits for everything, right? Um, so, so that that that's you can say that's an example of an, of an, of an economic effect. Um, now, what does that mean for identities? It means that um, you're a smuggler overnight, right? Because uh, because we're not talking about you know uh, students going to study, applying for visas, and things like that. We're talking about poor people trying to sell their products in historically what had been their marketplace. Right. These are this is a resource scarce community and it's a resource scarce land. And we're talking about an economic activity that is not um, that is not doesn't have a lot of money involved, but it does have a lot of livelihood of people involved. Uh, so that's so I would say I would draw our attention to 1937 partition. And there are other people who are doing you know, excellent work on that. There is uh, Professor Sana Ayur at MIT who is writing on, on the 37 partition, as far as I know. Um, there is a professor um, at King's College, uh, 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 Berenice Guillaume-Richard, who has an article called Tangled Lands. Uh, that's on the 37 partition. Uh, it's not on the Rohingyas, but because you see the border that I'm interested in was in the, in the Delta, because that's where I'm focusing on uh, I'm the interest in Rohingyas' uh, identity um, and their statelessness. Uh, but uh, the, the article Tangled Lands by Professor Guillaume-Richard looks at the, 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 the upper border in the uplands. So you have the Northeast, right? That's where also the border is crafted by the same partition of 37. Um, that becomes uh, rather, uh, rather disruptive by the Second World, World's, World War's effects. Uh, and then it becomes the border between 
newly independent India, August 47, newly independent Burma, January 48. So I think the effects of borders are really important. And I think we need to expand our understanding of partitions. So 37, I would say, is, is the beginning. 47 solidifies it. And 71 just you know, gives it a very different flavor and a very different meaning altogether. Um, since we were talking about the partition in 1937, um, as a thought experiment, if the Government of Burma Act was not passed, uh, and Burma remained a part of British India and continued to be a part of independent India. Do you think there would have been a, a different trajectory to uh, the religious and ethnic identity of the people in Rakhine? And um, would it have been as violent? Yes. Um, because... Uh, um, if 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 I think about the context, the, the prior context of the 1935 Act, um, leading 37 partition, uh, as I said in the 1930s, you know the the, the racial violence, uh, which is which was interconnected to uh, to to this anti-colonial awareness in Burma, was in and of itself violent in a in a in a very ethnic and racial sense. And so I, I think that perhaps, you know, if there was no 37 partition, there would be something else. You know, there, there would be there would be some other form of, uh, of, of territorial division, whatever form that would take. Uh, or it would be a very large territorial unit, but very, very violent all the time. Uh, and so I, um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting and important question to ponder on that what would South Asia look like without its many partition? And because I emphasized on the significance of 37, what would it look like? I, I would think, you know, it, 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 things, would have, things would have been far more violent because the, 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 the prior context of 35 was the racial violence in Burma, uh, anti-British and anti-Indian at the same time, which is what I started the, 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 our conversation with. So I think keeping that in mind, it doesn't give me hope. Uh, with respect to you know some uh, this a counterfactual that would lead to a less violent outcome, maybe a different form of uh, violent outcome, but violent nevertheless. Right, that's interesting. I think uh, as students of history and world politics, um, I don't know. We we tend to find very little hope <laughs> in a lot of scenarios. <laughs> yeah. It's the occupational hazard that we have. It is. I, I agree. <laughs> so I think I, I just my last question is um, based on India and its proposed amendment to the citizenship laws, uh, which were met with widespread public opposition. And a lot of the writing was around, um, you know, how the, the enactment of such a law would lead to persecution of minorities, similar to what has been, uh, what's been happening with the Rohingya people. Um, do you think it's fair to draw these kind of inferences uh, and compare these, I mean, the history of the Rohingya people with something that may happen uh, should an exclusionary citizenship law be uh, enacted in India? Uh, yeah, I think this is it's, it's 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 an important question to conclude our our conversation with. Um, so, 
you know, as uh, like those of us who are who are from India and from South Asia and work on South Asia, obviously we've been paying a lot of attention to in December 2019. And I know that we have been very busy with the pandemic, so we haven't had a lot of time to reflect, you know, what this would all mean again as we are coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so um, one of the things that I have been doing in my class, and I teach a class at Boston University called Global South Asia, and I'm going to teach a similar class at my next uh, home institution, University of Glasgow, also in Global South Asia, is that I, I, ca- I compare and contrast uh, uh, various kinds of laws regarding citizenship from South Asia to make sense of the 2019 Citizenship Amendment Act. And so one one act is is is, is the Burmese Citizenship uh, Act of the 1980s, and the other I get my students to think about is uh, you know how how citizenship laws were were changing in uh, in what is called Sri Lanka today and was called Ceylon back in the 40s, uh, and I think it's important to think comparatively. Um, I think what's uh, I think we need to be careful about you know wh- whether. When we are criticizing something, are we just invoking comparisons for the sake of rhetoric and effect? Um, and I think perhaps that's not the right approach. Uh, I do think the CAA is is terrible, and I think it's really anti-democratic, uh, without question. Uh, but I think you know you said that is it fair to compare? I would say you know as as students and scholars of South Asia and what citizenship and statelessness um, have meant over time. What it's going to mean now, going forward, I think we need to think comparatively, right? Because the diff- different countries that came out of colonialism within the subcontinent had different uh, kinds of politics, different leadership. And so some countries became exclusionary faster than others. Um, and I think this is an opportunity for us uh, to understand as to, you know, when is the red line being crossed? And I think we can learn a lot from exclusionary practices where it's happened earlier, like places like Sri Lanka. Um, so I'm thinking about the IOTs or the Indian origin Tamils um, and places like uh, like Burma that didn't happen until the 80s. But, you know, before the before the Citizenship Act of the 80s in Burma, there was explicit military persecution of the Rohingyas in the 60s. Um, so I think we, need, we can learn a lot by, by thinking comparatively with the legal piece of document in front of us to see has the line been crossed in India yet let's find out through all the evidence we have in in the subcontinent so I think I, I encourage that comparative thinking in the classroom and even for myself as as a scholar I think it helps me think clearly all right thank you so much I think um, I'm going to take a lot away from our conversation today um, especially about thinking comparatively I think we get too drawn into black and white and, uh, you know, just the binaries of, of, of what we're looking at. But uh, like you've said, there are a lot of layers, there is a lot of complexity and we can't just sort of overlook them. Thank you. No, I think this this has been great. I It was very exciting to talk about my new book project. Uh, it's called Partition Machine. It's going to take me a really long time to finish it. Um, so it was really exciting to you know, talk about the history and how it makes sense in the present. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you. It's been an honor. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. 
To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.